why there is a Robert E. Lee High School in Oregon is beyond me. Someone tweeted me that, and I was just amazed. I was like, what? He's everywhere. He doesn't need to be everywhere, though. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I am Sammy Hanf, news editor at the Appalachian, and this is a bi-monthly podcast where we talk about issues, big and small, and how they relate to the Appalachian community. Today, we are joined by Robert Wright Lee IV. He's an adjunct instructor here at Appalachian State University where he teaches public speaking, and he is also a distant relative of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Lee rose to national prominence at the VMAs, where he introduced Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer who was killed when a car plowed into protesters standing against white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia. In his speech, he called the Confederate statues symbols of hate and said that it is his duty, as a pastor, to stand against it. But when he returned to North Carolina, he had to resign from his position as pastor of Bethany United Church of Christ. In a statement on Auburn Seminary, he said that members of the congregation were uncomfortable with the attention that his remarks had attracted. It said in your statement that you were kind of hurt from some of the reactions there, and I, I kind of want to talk about the backlash and why you were hurt by that and what kind of support you've been getting from people. Well, of course, you're always hurt when things like this happen, when you have misunderstandings and don't want to engage in conversation. But I think one of the things I want to focus more on is the support I've received from the Appalachian community, which has been nothing short of remarkable. Vice Chancellor Brown, J.J. Brown, has been one of the greatest, uh, kindest souls in all of this just to come up and give me a big hug the day after I resigned and even went to my wife, who also works here at Appalachian, who was on staff at the Appalachian newspaper when she was an undergrad here. He went to visit with her and encouraged us both. And so it's been such an encouraging community. My students have been supportive. They've been engaging in the conversation. They've been saying, look, this is we support you. We stand behind you. Current faculty, uh, former faculty, even Chancellor Peacock reached out to me uh, recently and said he was supporting me and said he hopes that uh, this will move forward together and we can all look forward to God's future for us. Okay, great. But yeah, I, I do want to talk a little bit just about like some of the backlash you've been getting and how you have been feeling about that yeah. and how you've been kind of processing that. Well, I mean, Twitter trolls are awful people, um, and so are uh, the fact that they can hide behind their keyboards and engage in such rhetoric that is hateful. People don't know me, right? You know, like, you know me. We've met before. But there are people who have no idea who I am or what I stand for, have only seen me on a television screen or on an art or in a news article and are tweeting at me and saying, that I'm the worst thing that's happened to America. I'm stepping on the graves of my ancestors. I've been told that I've been need to join Steve Bannon in doing some of the stuff that he does to himself. That's what I was told. And I'm like, I don't even get this. Like, this is not, this makes no sense to me why you would engage it. But I think what it does speak to is the fact that we're hitting a national nerve about the conversation surrounding white supremacy and white privilege. People are afraid to talk about this. And when people are fearful, they lash out. Speaking to that idea that some of this backlash has been hitting a national nerve, where do you think that this backlash is really coming from? Well, I think it's coming from the people who have the most to lose in all this, right? I'm getting nothing but support from the African-American community who has said thank you for speaking up and speaking out. And I'm so thankful to them, and I'm trying to center their voices as well in this conversation because that's important to me. But I also think that white America and white churches 
have a lot to lose in this conversation. They have a lot to lose because they aren't confronting this. They aren't naming racism as a sin. They aren't naming racism as a as a problem from their pulpits or from their community centers or from their political organizations. And so when they don't do that, they lash out. So I think that's the real problem we're facing. Yeah, that's something that I definitely wanted to talk about, just the difference between the way that black churches have been addressing this issue and then white churches have been addressing this issue. Because you said on your interview in The View that white churches are having trouble finding the vocabulary to address these issues. Where have black churches been succeeding where white churches have been failing? Well, if you look at it from the black church perspective, from history, you see figures like Dr. King who believed in the inherent link between political and social activism and the church. Those two things are bound up together in such a way that they bind us forward into the future. The white church hasn't been engaging in that, especially on surrounding issues of racism, of LGBTQ rights. Um, We, the white church, are afraid to find words to speak our truth because we don't know what our truth is. We haven't talked about it. It's just something that hasn't come up, so we don't have the vocabulary to engage in that conversation. And that's really scary because if you don't have words to use in a church or in any other place, then you fall strangely short. That's one of the things I tell my public speaking students here at Appalachian. You've got to be prepared to speak up and speak out. And if people aren't doing that, then we're failing miserably with our complicity and our silence. Do you think that kind of complacency about these issues is stemming from a place of a lot of these white churches are in some way benefiting from white supremacy? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, white churches benefit from white supremacy all the time. They benefit, I would say, I would say they benefit more from white privilege than supremacy. Uh, Our pastors are paid well in the white churches. You know, the paychecks keep coming because the money keeps coming. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't disown that because I've benefited from it. But I also have to contextualize it and say, if you're going to hire me as a pastor or if you're going to engage with me in a pastoral way, then you need to be ready for these conversations that are difficult to have. And I think some churches just aren't ready for that. And those churches are ultimately the churches that will shut their doors. Yeah. And can you talk just a little bit more about how you see white churches benefiting from white privilege and white supremacy? Oh my gosh, it's 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 deeply ingrained. It's in the water table, right? I mean, like we're drinking the water of it. We sit in our pews on Sunday, which is the most segregated hour of our week. I mean, we talk about the gospel as if it is some far off idea that's very nice and gets us going and we don't have to worry about it because it doesn't really affect us. Now, if you go to a black church on Sunday morning, They are deeply concerned with the liberation of people because they too have experienced what the Israelites experienced when they were going out of Egypt. For for many black churches, America is Egypt. And we have to consider that and, and live into that and maybe reconcile that through our redemptive powers that we have as a church. Yeah, and just speaking to the the gospel there, it seems like you have a really great affinity for tradition, but you're speaking with like a very progressive voice. Do you see like your ministry is kind of trying to restore that progressive role that religion had in society, specifically in, in white churches who have not been addressing this issue? I, I think that tradition is so important. I mean, I'm a very traditional person, but tradition also requires innovation. Tradition requires that we speak into it new life. Gosh, Barack Obama in his book, The Audacity of Hope, talked about how for him the Bible was a living and breathing document that was moving even still today. And I know that's a politician saying that, but he was right on the money there. 
because that was one of those things that we have to realize for ourselves is that scripture, this the scripture that we talk about, this tradition that we talk about, the church mothers and the church fathers are integral parts of our history today because we carry with them the hope of the church and the future of the church. What are your plans going forward? You mentioned earlier how important it is to you to center the voices of people of color and those affected by racism. What does that look like for you? Yeah, gosh, um, I don't know what the future holds for me right now. I'm still working that out. I've got a lot of speaking engagements coming up, and that's really great. And I'm thankful to the churches and communities and events that are inviting me to these rather auspicious sometimes churches. I'm actually going to have the opportunity to preach at one of the larger African-American churches in Fort Washington, Maryland this weekend. Then in Winston-Salem at Wake Chapel in Wake Forest Baptist Church meets there in Wake Forest University's campus. And so I don't know what the future holds for me right now, but I know that the future is bright. Because in centering other people, I've seen more of myself. I've seen the power of redemption. I've seen that a name like Robert Lee doesn't mean as much to the world when you're centering other voices. Because you live with, I mean, all of us who are white probably live with some sense of white guilt, hopefully. But we don't let that guilt define us. We let it compel us to do something different. We let it compel us to live into the gospel of Jesus Christ and to engage in the traditions of the church and to engage in what God has called us to do to reconcile the world to God's self. Yeah, I think that's an important idea. And also, I remember in your speech to the VMAs, you called racism America's original sin. What can we do as Americans, as white Americans, to atone for that? So I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Um, You know, reparations is a hard word for a lot of people. Why should we have to pay for what our ancestors did is the common argument there. I personally don't know if we need to give economic reparations, but I do know we need to engage in intellectual, spiritual, mental reparations in having those deep conversations. Um, I think last time we talked, I was telling you that I had the opportunity to speak with a descendant of a former slave of the Lees, and we cried. We cried together. We laughed together. We, we committed to meet one another and engage in this continual process of reparations. I'm a college professor. I don't have enough money to give her what I'd love to give her. But I do know that I can engage with her in a conversation that leads to wholeness and to healing in some small way. And that's important to me. Yeah, I guess just in your role as a pastor, I think that you you would be focused on the uh, spiritual side. But do you think personally that there needs to be a side to kind of address the economic wrongs that have been done? I do. I do. I mean, now granted, like, I'm not saying you give everything away, but that may mean tipping well. That may mean buying someone dinner and asking them to have a conversation about what America looks like to you. And you don't do that out of necessity. Do You do that out of will to want to make the world a better place. For instance, I'd love to take someone out to dinner who heard this podcast and treat them to dinner and hear about their side of America's story. Because it's probably different from mine, whether you're gay, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're a person of color, whatever your minority is, whether you're disabled, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, it's a different America than what I've experienced. And I'd love to hear that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we can see if we can maybe get a lottery or something like yeah, that going well, uh, for the podcast gosh. listeners. But um, I guess I, I, I just want to ask, do you think that there needs to be something done on like a larger societal level? Because I think last time we talked, we talked about Jesus kind of as a revolutionary. Yeah. Do you think that there needs to be something to address this inequality at a larger level? 
oh yeah, I mean, whether that's policy or economic uh, reparations or whatever, there has to be a willingness to say that there is a right and wrong side instead of many sides, like what we're hearing right now. And that may take us waiting until 2018 or 2020 to see that happen. Um, And that's not to get political, but as I said yesterday, the pulpit is inherently political. We've got to engage in these conversations with our political leaders. I've had some politicians reach out to me and say, you know, you should run for office. And I'm like, I'm good. Um, But also, I think that we need to, as people of faith, whether you are a person of faith or whether you are or not, you need to engage in the political conversation that leads towards equality. I think one of the things we can look at here at Appalachian State is we need to be a better diverse community. We need to be better at being diverse. We need to encourage persons of color to come to this school and provide scholarship opportunities for them because this is an awfully white school. And we recognize that. And so now it's our time to do something about it. You just mentioned like how the pulpit is inherently political. How do you see your role not necessarily on the politics side, but as fostering a political movement? Do you see yourself as doing that or do you see it as, as something removed from that? I think it's both and. I think there's a movement going on right now that's centered around this idea of Confederate monuments. And I have been thrust into the conversation I told someone the other day this was a conversation I wasn't expecting to have. But I'm here now, and I'm going to do it. That's the only thing I can say is that, you know, I I never intended to to lose a lot for this, to lose everything for this. But I've learned that the cost of discipleship is great, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, would say. He died in Nazi Germany. He realized that there was such thing as costly grace, and the grace that costs us actually makes us stronger, makes us more in tune with what Jesus had in mind as a revolutionary uh, zealot, and engages us for a deeper conversation. And then I also just want to talk about, like, as a Southerner, we talked about how you very personally have to deal with these symbols of racism and America's, quite frankly, horrible past. Do you think that the South can kind of set a moral example by facing with and, like, atoning for that past? And what does that look like to you? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is, Broderick Greer pointed this out to me on Twitter the other day, is that our definition of the South as white people might be a very different definition of a South that persons of color and African Americans or whatever you want to, whatever whatever the label that you've put on people is, because for, 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 for black people, there's other things to celebrate besides Confederate monuments. For us, there's other things to celebrate besides Confederate monuments. I mean, biscuits and gravy, you can't get that in New York City. I learned the hard way while I was up there. Um, you know, you can't get the good the good food that we have down here or the culture or the way people act. But we also have to engage, as you said, in that atoning. What would it be like for a, for a little black child to go to Robert E. Lee High School or to Robert E. Lee Elementary School or to cross over the Robert E. Lee Bridge or to see a statue in a public space as they walk into a courtroom. What is that like? I have no idea. I'm a white person. But it makes me uncomfortable as a white person, so I can't imagine what that makes people feel who, who, who aren't white. And so I think it's engaging in that conversation and saying enough is enough. We have to contextualize this. This, is not, this, is not, this has nothing to do with our history. This has to do with white supremacy. And this has nothing to do ultimately with the South because they're in 31 states. You know, this is not just a Southern thing. Why there is a Robert E. Lee High School in Oregon is beyond me. Someone tweeted me that, and I was just amazed. I was like, what? He's everywhere. He doesn't need to be everywhere, though. 
Yeah, well, that's also something that I want to talk about where there is like this distinction of the South versus the rest of America on this issue. When, as we were saying earlier, you believe that racism is America's original sin. Yeah. It's something that is a part of the fabric of our entire country. Yeah. I think racism is America's original sin, and we've had to live with that sin that is reoccurring every few years. We started with the slave trade before our nation was even founded. We engaged in slavery up until the Civil War, and then with Reconstruction, we had the Jim Crow South. But we also had the Jim Crow North, too. It was just much more subversive. Then we got to the 1960s. We had the Voting Rights Act, and but it took even my hometown almost 10 years to integrate their schools. That's the hard part of this. We're not far removed from it. We think, oh, gosh, that was such a long time ago. It wasn't. It wasn't. Rosa Parks sat on a bus not too long ago. You know, Martin Luther King had a dream not too long ago. He'd been, he went to the mountaintop not too long ago. And we have to remember that our past is deeply in- interconnected whether we're living in North Carolina or in California. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This show was produced by me, Sammy Hamp, news editor at the Appalachian. And as ever, if you want more great audio content like this, check out our SoundCloud. The episodes of this podcast are released every other Thursday, so be sure to check that out. And as ever, go to www.theappalachianonline.com or our Twitter or our Facebook for your one-stop shop for everything you need to know about Appalachian State and Boone. Once again, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye, y'all.